and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. Most European countries locked down once the scale of the crisis became apparent, some later than others. But one took a different approach, Sweden. People are urged to socially distance, but schools, cafes, gyms and restaurants have stayed open. Gatherings of more than 50 people are banned, but parents are told to send their kids to school unless they are actually ill, even if a sibling or parent is sick. Why does Sweden have a different strategy and is it working? Joining me is Andrew Brown, author of Fitting in Utopia, a book about Swedish culture and politics which won the Orwell Prize in 2009 and a former journalist at The Guardian and The Independent. He lived in Sweden as a young man and has regularly revisited it since. Hello Andrew. Morning. In the UK, morning. In the UK we saw intense public pressure to lock down after countries like France and Italy did so. Did the Swedish government come under the same pressure domestically? Um, not that I noticed. There was a great deal. There's a, I mean, people were much less panicked. In part, I think that was Swedish exceptionalism. They seemed confident that if the government said things were all right, they were all right. So pretty unlike here, where there's a general suspicion of what the government might be doing. Yes, I think that's true. There, There is quite a lot of alienation from the government, but not nearly on the scale that there is here. And in narrow party political terms, support for the government has, has zoomed up in this crisis, as it has almost everywhere else. Well, when I say zoomed up, the Social Democrats are now up to 30% in the opinion polls, but they have been hovering in the lower 20s and actually overtaken by the, by the, shall we say, nationalist Sweden Democrat Party. So what's the thinking behind the strategy? Is it our old friend herd immunity? Or is it a problem with restrictions on individual liberty that lockdown implies? I think there are two sets of reasonings going on here. Among the epidemiologists, it's herd immunity. Their view is that without a vaccine, there's not all that much you can do. And they say explicitly that the scorecard should not be the number of people who die now, but how many people in five years' time are found to have died from the combined effects of the virus now and the economic collapse afterwards. Beyond that, there is, I think, a tendency among Swedish intellectuals, I don't think it's... Um, all that widespread in the public, uh, to take a very high view of Sweden as, you know, a country where um, individual judgment is respected and the, the government pe treats people like grown-ups and expects them to behave um, in grown-up ways. And if they know the facts, they will behave sensibly. This view is pushed especially by my friend Lars Tregård, who's um, a sociologist, but it has to be said that it doesn't convince everyone. And that's obviously very <clears throat> unlike the view that we've had from the government here, where there are reports at the weekend that even talk of an extra exit strategy ought to be stopped because it would confuse the public to be to have it suggested that we could ever leave this this current state. Well, yes, I mean, I think one has to be a little subtle here because my experience and memory of the Swedish government is that it was extremely bossy, but part of the technique of social control was to deny that it existed. Whereas in this country, there's never been any uh, 
great reluctance to deny the existence of a, of a class hierarchy or to suggest that there shouldn't be people on top giving orders to people underneath. And that these orders are, are, must sometimes be sort of enshrouded in bluff. So if we think about how the strategy is working, reports so far are mixed. The Guardian said at the weekend that elderly people were paying the price of the failure to lock down. On the other hand, Bloomberg suggested this week that it might be working and the curve might even be beginning to flatten despite the lack of of extreme social distancing. What's your impression? My impression is that the Guardian is closer to the truth, but that Bloomberg is looking at the wrong metric. Um, let's be clear here, just as everywhere else, the virus is much worse for the poor and the old in um, Rinkeby, which is one of the um, the sort of satellite towns of Stockholm with a very high immigrant concentration. The rate is a bit more than twice that of um, the inner city, which is rich and prosperous. And similarly, you've had... Uh, 1,580 people die of COVID and nearly 40% of them have been in care homes. So it is very, it is pretty bad news in care homes. But as I say, the epidemiologists running this are to some extent, they're people who who got their training in the AIDS epidemic in, in Africa. And to some extent, they're resigned to quite a lot of deaths among the vulnerable. And their, their measure of success is, um, is how things are going to be in five years' time. This is a fairly brutal way of doing it, but their view is that the facts are brutal. It's interesting because I saw a somewhat similar view in Private Eye yesterday, uh, which was totally at odds with other coverage I've seen in the British media. But tell us about the Swedish PM, uh, Stefan Lotvin. Does he, does he still, you, obviously his ratings are going up, so he will still have public support how much is he identified by the policy or has he very much been led by the epidemiologists and to a certain extent the intellectuals as you were saying well my impression of levian is that he's um he's not the flagship of the policy the the swedish model is very much that the experts ought to be in charge there there is in a non-pejorative sense i think I think it's non-pejorative. There's a sense of the, the priesthood of scientists, that they have access to reliable knowledge denied to the rest of us and that they should be obeyed. So Levien's job is to, is to coordinate the government rather than to, to come up. There's not the sort of Boris Johnson-type cult about him, uh, nor would he be very suitable to such a <laughs> nor would he be very well suited to such a thing. So no sense that I we've had enough of experts. <laughs> no sense that we've had enough of experts. The, the only area where that might apply is, is over-immigration and race and so on, but that is really rather separate to what's going on here. You've written a lot about the Swedish faith in the welfare state and how it began to crumble in the 1980s. How do Swedes think about relationship between individuals and the, and the state, apart from, as you've said, this trust in experts? Is it, is it it's still a high-tax society? It's not nearly as high a tax a society as it was. And what people 
often miss, especially that portion of the British left that thinks of Sweden as the place which has got it right, is how very, very far and fast the pendulum swung against collective solutions in the 90s. Um, I mean, I think of Swedish opinion as, as very like a shoal of herring. Um, you know, they all cling together and they're all heading in the same direction, but this direction can swing instantly and they'll all hurtle off with equal conviction in another direction. Lars Trögod, whom I mentioned earlier, has this elegant triangle of relationships between the state, the family, and the individual, where he says in Sweden the contract is between the state and the individual, and the family is left out. In Germany, the contract is between the state and the family, and the individual comes last. And in Anglo-Saxon societies, the, it's the individual and the family who count, and the state which is sort of off to one side. And so I do think that Swedes generally have a, a more direct relationship with the state and with society, which are quite difficult in the Swedish imagination to distinguish. And certainly when I lived there, the same word was used for both. Um, and yes, to that extent, I, I don't think that that relationship has changed very much. I think there's still a sense that you are connected. It's one of the things they mean by democracy. Immigration to Sweden peaks in the mid-2010s. How has that changed the country? Well, that, for a start, I'm not at all sure that the sort of instinctive relationship between the individual and the state uh, is felt in the same way among immigrant communities. I really don't want to generalise too much here. And the whole subject is extremely inflamed, not least because any grown-up discussion of it was scrupulously avoided by the mainstream media for a very long time. But um, there are certainly, among the political refugees, um, there are a lot who come from societies where you are absolutely, your first loyalty is to your family and not to the surrounding state. And this has... Um, an effect on attitudes. Similarly, there are a lot, uh, not, you know, not sort of overwhelming, but about as much xenophobia as you'd, affect, so, as you'd expect. So there are quite a lot of Swedes who do not think of these people as properly Swedish, and that's not part of the same bargain, because one of the one of the deals under the old dispensation was that you knew that everyone else had the same relationship to the state as you did and as we've seen from the statistics the 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 immigrants and their children are concentrated in poorer areas and these are places where the um, where the virus has been worst it's just as in every other country there's you know overcrowding um poor economic prospects and um, sort of youth unemployment. So, I mean, I really would not like to be the Swedish police chief who is charged with breaking up gatherings of people not from the same household in one of those ghettos. I think there'd be riots. Moving on to physical distancing, there's been some, some talk which may be... A 
playing a little on stereotypes, I'm not sure, that suggests that Swedes find physical distancing easier than most Europeans, particularly Southern Europeans. And do you think that puts that, uh, them at an advantage in this in this situation? I think that's about 80% stereotype, mm-hmm. to be honest. Part of it is that as a relatively prosperous country, people have more personal space than Southern Europeans, people tend to live alone. There's some extraordinary statistic that I came across, something between 15 and 20% of the funerals in Stockholm a couple of years back were attended by no mourners at all. So this, this what starts as solitude becomes loneliness in old age. And of course, it's a very, very big country. Uh, there are lots of places where the, about two-thirds of the population live in, in the three big urban conglomerations. But once you're in the backwoods, you really are in the backwoods, and physical distancing is not a problem. But when you see Swedes sort of gathering in groups, uh, they don't kind of keep two meters from one another. Um, and there's, it's a culture with a lot of handshaking. I wouldn't put I'd say they expect to be self-sufficient. They don't, they don't put nearly such a weight on family life as Southern Europeans, and that's a factor. But I don't think there's anything particularly sort of genetically weird, and they're certainly not out of line with either Norwegians or Finns in that respect. And you say that uh, family is not privileged to the same extent in Sweden as it is elsewhere, and one of the results of that, I think, is it's very usual for elderly people to live in care homes rather than be looked after by their family, except perhaps in these ethnic minority communities we we mentioned earlier. Is it, I mean, we've seen the, the virus spread quite quickly in care homes, and that's clearly very distressing. Um, but on the other hand, people who aren't in care homes are likely to be locked down for many months, and that may lead to enormous loneliness there. Um, do you, do you think the Swedish approach of having a large a large number of the population in in elderly population in care homes is an advantage in trying to control the virus, or or not? Well, for a start, I'm not completely certain of the distinction you're drawing, because beyond. In Sweden and in here, it seems to me that the point at which you go into a care home is the point when you can't manage on your own. People stay out of them for as long as they possibly can, um, unless you're talking about sort of luxury retirement community type things where you you know gradually become more and more helpless. And it's more that there is, in most of Sweden, there is no housing shortage. Um, so people can live on their own. But the, the number of old people living on their own here is also very high. As far as I know, there's no um, distinction at all once people get helpless in the rate at which ethnic minority Swedes go into care homes and the rate at which ethnic majority ones do. And again, the criterion is can you manage on your own? With all that said, the statistics really don't suggest that the Swedes are doing a, a very good job of keeping the 
the virus out of care homes, certainly not in the Stockholm region. There's a leading epidemiologist who is the force behind the herd immunity strategy. Tell us a bit more about his thinking. I assume you're referring to Johan Jesicke, who is um, who was the head of the um, public health authority and um, whose previous subordinate, Anders Tenniel, is now running the thing and who is the public face of the strategy. Now, Jesicke has been doing the rounds. He did an interview on Unheard and he's going to be Zeitung and all sorts of other people um, saying that the herd immunity is basically the only option here that everybody is in fact pursuing the Swedish strategy whether they know it or not and that all the various European countries will come out with about the same death figures in the end. His view is that uh, this is a very contagious virus which in almost all cases has hardly any effects, that most people who get it won't have any symptoms, uh, that of course some people will have very disagreeable symptoms and some people will die but that the only way in which it will eventually be stopped, or the only practical way, is through some form of herd immunity rather than a vaccine may come, it may not. The most recent thing I've seen of him is, is a clip on television saying, you know, we have some studies showing that 10% of the population of Stockholm have already been infected. Now, if he's right about the nature of the virus, then obviously calculations change. But as you know, none of us can actually know at the moment. And the rejoinder to that in Britain, of course, is that uh, the problem with herd immunity, uh, apart from the fact that uh, more people will initially die and uh, possibly more people overall, we don't know yet, is that the strain it will put in the short term on the NHS. Now, is that not such conceived as such a problem? in Sweden? Do they feel their health service is sufficiently strong to be able to cope with Well, Jusica says yes. Jusica says right across Europe, um, in fact, the, 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 the health services have beefed up almost everywhere enough to cope with it. Um, I don't know if he'd care to make this point in Lombardy, but um, it does appear to be something like that may be true in this country. But again, it's very hard to tell because the, the, the effects are so complex. You can look around at our COVID places and say, well, we're doing fine. And then you see the excess deaths from all the other causes. You see the, the, the almost empty A&E departments. You see the rise in deaths from heart attacks and so on and so forth. It is quite possible to say that the health service can cope with the virus, but not with anything else at the same time. I think... It's worth remembering that the background, the worldview of the two epidemi epidemiologists who have been so influential in Swedish debate was shaped by their early experiences in Central Africa in the 1990s fighting the AIDS pandemic. They see really rather ghastly outcomes as sometimes unavoidable and natural. And in Norway and Finland, um, and to a certain extent, Denmark, we see countries which <clears throat> are quite similar to Sweden uh, and have similarly strong uh, state, staff, uh, state apparatus and yet a very different approach. How are they faring with the coronavirus? Well, as far as I can tell, 
they're doing better for the moment, it's it's very, very difficult to to get detailed information and um, detailed, reliable comparisons because although socially Norway and Finland are very similar um, to Sweden in many ways, partly there is a steep nationalist edge in the relations between all three countries. Partly the other two are much smaller and have um, much more spread out populations. Uh, Denmark is is yet another case. <laughs> Just before we came on, I was I was flicking through the Danish papers online and came on this wonderful viral clip of the head of the Danish Public Health Authority uh, solemnly explaining that sex is good, sex is healthy. Gatherings of more than ten people are wrong, but gatherings of two people very good thing to do under lockdown. <laughs> Which I thought was the most Danish of all possible reactions. <laughs> yes, how to deal with your your loneliness? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, of course, recommending the government website where you can go and find advice on safe set. Thanks very much for talking to me, Andrew, and thanks everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then there's another Bunker Daily tomorrow, and our full-length roundtable edition comes out, as ever, on Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe. If you've got time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor, produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>